Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for our time together, as I always look forward to and anticipate a couple of hours of uh, great discussion. My in-studio guest is Chris Bruno. He's written a book that I know is going to be uh, a fascinating uh, discussion. It's called Paul versus James. What we've been missing in the faith and works debate yeah, think you got questions for Chris? I bet you do. If you do, you can uh, send us a text, 877-933-2484, uh, but maybe not right away because I want to give Chris a chance to talk here. Um, he has uh, got his Ph.D. at Wheaton, and he serves as a, an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary right here in Minneapolis. He also has uh, worked at a church in Honolulu, so, of course, begs the question, what is he doing here? Um, I'll ask that, time permitting. Um, he's married to his beautiful white, uh, wife, Katie, and they've got four sons from ages 3 to 15. So he's a busy guy. All right, let me take 60 seconds, and I'll bring on Chris. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio. We're now just days away from our fall fundraiser. These important and strategic days represent the best time to join in supporting this ministry because your gift today keeps us going strong all year long. When you give to Faith Radio, you're providing for daily hope and encouragement coming to you and thousands of others through the relevant Bible preaching, family-focused teaching, and compelling conversations from your favorite hosts, Carmen LeBird, Susie Larson, and Bill Arnold. Your encouragement and engagement is making a difference as lives are being changed, families strengthened, and communities impacted through the preaching of the gospel. Thousands each week are impacted for Christ through listening on air, online, on the app, or on demand through our podcasts, all thanks to your investment. So pray about your part in lifting up the name of Jesus through media and join us for Fall Share starting Tuesday, September 10th. Or make your gift today by calling 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. Very glad to be inviting into the studio Chris Bruno, an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He's written a book called Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Chris, welcome. Well, thank you so much. Glad to be here yeah, with you, Bill. This is, this is a big book that you've got. I mean, not huge, like I can't carry it by myself, <laughs> but, you know, it's... Um, this this debate we've been around the church long enough that if someone asks you about these verses paul would say one is justified by faith apart from works of the law james would say a person is justified by works and not by faith alone yeah it's a common question right it is. if yes. you've been around the bible you're going to ask that question pretty soon mm-hmm. and so different people have given different answers to the question over the years and they have and haven't we all adopted at some uh, level which one we think best fits our w- hmm. worldview or I, I think 
Often we do, right? We tend to privilege one or yes, the other. That's a better way of saying it. And, um, you know, the, the fact that Paul has written so much more than James uh, tends to make us think that, that maybe we're, we should lean toward the Paul team mm-hmm. a little more. But God gave us the book of James for a reason. I mean, the, James is an important part of the New Testament. It gives us some uh, some additional perspectives and help that uh, that God wanted us to have. So we, we can't ignore James. We can't pretend like he's not saying what he's saying, and we can't just kind of try to push him off to the side and not deal seriously with what he's telling us about uh, faith and works. Well, let's talk about the players now. Sure. Most of us know Paul, and we all know James, but tell us who James was. Yeah, well, James is the brother of Jesus. Now, there's debate in history mm-hmm. about whether James is the biological brother of Jesus or whether he's a cousin of Jesus or a close relative of Jesus. And really, I'm not that concerned about debating that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my perspective on it. I tend to think that you know the kind of more recent Protestant view makes sense, but we have to be honest about the fact that actually many of the early reformers, um, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, held to uh, some version of the perpetual virginity of Mary, mm-hmm. so that James was a cousin of Jesus or something like that. So, but again, not the main topic of discussion. So, of course not. Um, but he was a close relative of Jesus, probably his brother. Grew up in the same town as him. Um, grew up in the same family. Uh, learned many of the same things alongside of him. Um, so he grew up in a home where the Old Testament, the, the, which was the only Bible they had in those days, was taught and held closely to. And he grew up along with the rest of the family, going up to the temple every year, mm-hmm. as we read about in the Gospels when Jesus was 12 and he went into the temple. Um, so he grew up going to the temple. He grew up hearing the Bible. He grew up learning all of the same things that Jesus himself was, was learning, which is really interesting when we put him... Uh, in conversation or comparison to Paul, right? Paul grew up in the same kind of a home. He grew up in a home where he learned the Bible, where he learned the Old Testament, um, where he went to Jerusalem to be trained by the rabbis. So as you're thinking about contrasting Paul and James, I think it's really important to start there and look at how similar they were in their upbringing. And then if we keep going from there, just think about not only did they both grow up reading the Old Testament, traveling to Jerusalem often, and, and Paul stayed there for, for part of his education, but they both rejected Jesus as the Messiah mm-hmm. when they first heard about his claims. So we, we know Paul's story, right? Um, persecutor of the church, violently seeking to wipe out the church, to put them in prison, even to murder them at the uh, stoning of Stephen. He stood there and kind of watched over the whole thing. Uh, But James and the other brothers of Jesus also rejected his claim to be Messiah, not quite as violently, not quite as viciously, but they didn't believe him. So they both grew up knowing the Old Testament. They both grew up regular trips to Jerusalem, and they both rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So there's so much shared history there that should inform even the way we think about Uh, these letters and how to interpret them. And then if we're continuing on with shared history, we could also say they both had an encounter with the risen Jesus that transformed their lives. Mm -hmm. So Paul on the road to Damascus, James uh, at some point, uh, Paul. actually we learned this from Paul 
in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, appeared to James. So I think the, the best way we can put those pieces together is to say James didn't believe in Jesus during his life. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to him, and <laughs> that changed his mind. That was a radical encounter. And so both of them had these encounters with the risen Christ that changed the rest of their lives and set them on this trajectory toward ministry. Um, and really, they, they both ended up giving the rest of their lives for the sake of the gospel. Mm-hmm. If you think of James, if he was the brother of Jesus, would have grown up in the same house, and then he's basically rejecting the messianic claims of his older brother. Yeah. Kind of we- a big deal. It's a big deal. And when you put Mary into the equation as well, yeah. who clearly was not rejecting those messianic claims, we don't have much information about Joseph. Uh, most scholars assume that he passed away while Jesus was still relatively young. But at least Mary, his mother, um, was not rejecting those claims. In fact, she was following Jesus as the Messiah. So we have this interesting dynamic, and, and we don't have a lot of information on it, and we could speculate about what that dynamic looks like. Sometimes that's not helpful. Not on my show, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say no sometimes that's not, not too helpful. Right. But, I mean, we have enough pieces of the puzzle there to see, okay, th- there was presumably, whether it was tension or, or certainly disagreement there, um, they were not on the same page. Yeah, and it is pretty stunning, Chris, to think that, that uh, James did not have a um, conversion until after Jesus had uh, risen from the dead. Yeah. It's just hard to believe that you could be in that environment, in that proximity, and yet you were still not convinced. You know, Mr. Perfect Older Brother, huh? <laughs> Who knows what was going on in his head? But, or again, we're back speculating. But, you know, <laughs> it's interesting that his conversion didn't take place till after the resurrection. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot that we could reflect on there. And again, not the main point of our time here together, but... Just thinking, you know, theologically and, uh, you know, people can be in proximity to the truth. They can hear the truth a lot. They can see true things. They can, uh, well, as as James says later, they can even say true things, but they don't truly believe it. So just kind of lining those things up, uh, it's a... Again, we keep coming back to the speculation, so I'm going to back off of that one. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but the, there, there's some fascinating things we could think about. But that, then just theologically, you know, the fact that James saw the truth, heard the truth, but he didn't believe until he had this en- encounter where, where it was undeniable that, Jesus, that the risen Christ was in front of him. It tells us uh, lots of things about how God works, and uh, we can trust him as we wait for him to work. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Chris, as we get into uh, what we've been missing in this uh, faith and works debate, I know we've got um, a lot of meat on these bones, so we're gonna we're gonna get at them, right? Sure. Yeah. So let me uh, take a very short break. Uh, Chris Bruno is my guest. He's in here right with me in studio, assistant uh, professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary, right here in Minneapolis. We'll be back in ninety seconds.
All right, we were not gone too long. Dr. Chris Bruno, but I call him Chris, is right here in studio with me. He's written a book called Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. And that's what we're going to start uh, going through right now. Let's get into the text, Chris. Uh, where do we start? Well, um, maybe we could jump into James. Okay. Because people are often pretty familiar, or more familiar, as I said a few minutes ago, with Paul. But when we come to James 2, oftentimes we'll read it, or at least this is my experience both personally and in talking to others. We'll read it and we'll kind of understand it, but uh, not quite know what to do with some of the things that James says. And then we just keep going to chapter three and, okay, I understand this. But let's let's go back to James 2. And uh, I mean, we can't get into everything I know because we're on the radio and we only have so much time, but... Uh, there are a few key issues I think that would be really helpful for us to talk through that might help us better understand what James is saying here in this text. Um, so James 2.14, he asked the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not also have works? Can that faith save him? And I think that's really a key question. I, the translation I was reading there I think gets it right when that last bit of the verse says, can that faith save him? So James is talking about a certain kind of faith. It's a, it's a quote unquote faith. I'm doing scare quotes. You know, it's a certain kind of faith. That's a faith that doesn't have works. He says, if your brother or sister is lacking clothes or food or something, and you don't take care of them, what kind of faith is that? And he compares it to, demons in uh, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is well, or excuse me, that God is one. You do well. Good job. So God is one. This is the fundamental confession of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so you, you say the right confession. You have the right creed. Good job. But even the demons believe this and shudder. So think about what he's saying there. Even the demons believe something that's true. So the demons know the truth, that there's one God, that Israel's God is the true God. They know that. They, they believe it's true. They know that it's true. And they shudder. They have uh, an emotional reaction to that truth. They have the right emotional reaction to that truth because they understand that Israel's God is the God of the world who's going to judge all things one day, and part of that includes their own condemnation. So demons have the right intellectual knowledge and even a proper emotional response to that intellectual knowledge. But there's still something missing. So James is saying to his audience, you say you have faith. You, you know the right things to say. You believe intellectually that certain things are true. So we can put it into our context, you know, with whatever creed. You can say the Apostles' Creed. Great. We should say the Apostles' Creed. But are our lives transformed? So James goes on to uh, explain that there's this kind of faith that's no faith at all. What he's really doing here is unpacking the idea of a uh, phony faith, a fake faith. And, and then 
he contrasts that fake faith, which is really a demonic faith, with the example of Abraham. So it's interesting, even as we think about James and Paul together, they're both citing the example of Abraham. So not one of the keys to understanding James is to understand how he's using the word faith, that there's a kind of fake faith that's no saving faith at all. And another key for understanding what James is doing is to understand his uh, story, the way he's telling the story of Abraham. And he, he, like Paul, he quotes from Genesis 15. So Genesis 15, 6, well-known Old Testament text. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is kind of the foundational statement for justification by faith throughout the whole Bible. Abraham believed God. He believed that God's promises were true. He trusted God to keep his covenant promises to him and to his descendants. And it was counted to him as righteousness. God granted him the status righteous. He pronounced him justified. So both Paul and James are quoting that. But notice where James goes first. He, he goes to Genesis 22, which is when Abraham offered Isaac, or he was going to offer Isaac up on the altar. Now, modern readers, myself included, are, are kind of uncomfortable with that story at times. And we, you can have somebody else on on another day to, to kind of talk through some of those questions about uh, Old Testament uh, sacrifices and, and things like that. But in the Abraham story in Genesis, that sacrifice of Isaac is like the central place where Abraham's obedience is on display, right? That's where he shows that he's obeying God. So James goes right there to Genesis 22. Now, now think again about where Genesis 22 is in the story of Abraham. We were talking a few minutes ago in the studio about, you know, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. If we back up to Genesis 15, and in Genesis 12, when God first called Abraham, he was probably about 75 years old. So we have 25 years between when God called him and when Isaac was born. And then at this point, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain, Isaac's probably, well, it doesn't say how old he is, but most people think, you know, he's at least around teenage, early teenage years. One Jewish source says he's like in his 30s. We don't know. But he's old enough to carry a bundle of sticks up the mountain. So probably not two years old. Um, so we're talking about, 40 years, maybe, mm-hmm. from when God first called Abraham to when he's offering up Isaac. So that's 40 years of walking with God, 40 years of believing that God's promises are true. So James goes there and says, look at Abraham's life 40 years after he believed God. He was obeying God. Excuse me. So the point I think James is making is, True faith, true saving faith is going to be marked by long-term obedience that shows that that faith is true. So Abraham is trusting God 
He's not just saying uh, the right things, but it's actually impacting the way he lives. And it's transforming him. So that, that James can say, in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So only now does he quote Genesis 15. So he starts at the end, and he looks back to the beginning and says, how can you tell that the beginning was authentic? It's by looking at the end. So true, true saving faith is a faith that perseveres, is what James is saying. It's not this fake faith that just kind of checks the right box mm-hmm. or stands up on Sunday mornings and says the Apostles' Creed, but then goes home and does whatever it wants. But it's a faith that holds fast to God's promises through the years. So really what James is arguing against is fake faith. He's, he's saying, you are not understanding what true faith is. If you're saying that you can say the right things, but not be transformed at all. All right. I don't know if I've ever read that passage and seen that as fake faith. So this is really interesting. Um, and I love the I love the connection uh, to Genesis and Abraham's long um, obedience in the right direction over forty years. Yeah, I think one of the keys here, like I've said, is to see. Uh, the opponents that both James and Paul are fighting against. So if you think of them, they're not fighting each other. So lots of scholars will have argued that one is responding to the other or something Mm -hmm. like that, so that James is arguing against Paul or some, you know, somebody writing in James' name is arguing against Paul, and we get into all these different theories. But they're not arguing against each other. Really what they're doing is standing back to back, fighting off different enemies. Mm-hmm. So in, in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, I can't remember which one. I, I think there's this scene, if you remember these, this kind of my generation. Uh, there's this scene where uh, Gimli and Legolas are standing like back to back, fighting off all these orcs. That's kind of what Paul and James are doing. Okay. So on the one hand, James is fighting off these orcs of uh, fake faith. Mm-hmm. And then Paul, on the other hand, is fighting a different enemy. He's fighting a a wrong view of works, and and we can get into that in a minute. We plan to. All right. So James James is is saying there's a kind of faith that's not real faith. And and this is your problem. You're not understanding what real saving faith looks like. That's awesome. All right, Chris, we're going to take a short break because we need to, and then when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion. Dr. Chris Bruno is my guest in studio, and his book, is called Paul versus James. As a matter of fact, I've got two copies to give away. If you'd like to uh, enter the drawing to win one, bill at myfaithradio.com. Make sure you leave your uh, name and address so I know where to send the winners. And just put uh, Paul versus James in the subject line. We'll be back in 90 seconds.
All right, we're back with Dr. Chris Bruno. Chris has written a book called Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. And we were talking um, about kind of uh, easy believism, like you uh, you might be embracing a not a true faith. You might just be saying words, and it might not be exactly um, a true sort of conversion to faith. So maybe you would address... Uh, um, that a little bit more, Chris, then we'll move on to Paul. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the perennial dangers um, within the Christian church, this idea that if we say the right thing or if we check the right box or even if we do something like walk an aisle or, you know, th- these different markers and different traditions do this in different ways, but at, at the end of the day, what they all share in common is this idea that all we have to do is say the right thing or intellectually assent to the right thing. So, so it becomes your faith becomes no different than the fact that you believe George Washington was the first president of our country. Right. So that's a very different thing than believing that Jesus is your savior. But some people operate almost like those things are on the same level, as long as we give it intellectual assent. Mm-hmm. And and that's what James is arguing against. Um, but then that raises the question: What? Uh, how, how can I know my faith is genuine? Right. That's a great question, Chris. And it was just brought <laughs> by a listener that said, if we're meant to know if our faith is real or not when we can't see the end in order to determine if our beginning was sincere or not. Yeah, yeah. So Good that, question. That's why God, I think, has given us the writings of Paul in the New Testament, because Paul addresses a different enemy than what James is addressing. So on the one hand, you have easy believism. You're fighting against fake faith. James it, it seems to be targeting his arrows at those who are you know, not that concerned about whether they're actually believing Jesus, they're not that concerned about actually following him as king. It's just, it is what it is, that I can say the right things and I don't have to worry about how I live. Paul, on the other hand, is arguing against the wrong view of works. It's this idea that our works are the things that actually win us favor with God. So in Romans 4... Paul is bringing up the Abraham example again, just like James did. A few minutes ago, I I was talking about how James starts in Genesis 22. So we said about 40 years after Abraham's initial faith. And he looks back over Abraham's life. But, But James, or excuse me, Paul starts in Genesis 15. When Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul starts at the beginning and he looks forward. Now, Paul says to the one who works, this is from Romans 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's saying if Abraham's justified status, and maybe I should stop here and just define justification because we haven't really done that yet. When I say justification, I'm saying that God is counting you as righteous. He's declaring that you are just. 
and accepted by him, that your sins have been forgiven and that you've been given the status righteous. And, and what Paul's arguing here is we don't get that status because of what we have done. If we work to get that status, then it's like a wage. You work to get a paycheck. Uh, but if you don't work, but believe in the one who justifies the ungodly, is the phrase Paul uses, then his faith is counted as righteous, as righteousness. So th- this is what Paul, uh, God did for Abraham, that he declared him righteous at the very beginning. So it's not as if Abraham believed, and then 40 years later, God declared him righteous because he had this track record of good works. No, he was declared righteous at the very beginning. So he had that status from the beginning. Paul's emphasizing here that it wasn't his works. It wasn't what he did. It wasn't the family he was born into. It wasn't the fact that he was circumcised. In fact, he he goes, makes the point to say, Abraham had this status before he was circumcised. So that there's a lot of debate among scholars exactly what does Paul mean by works of the law here? Um, how, how did it function in the first century? Those kind of questions. And, and we don't need to get into all of that. But I, I think at the end of the day, we, we have to say that works of the law are things that we do, right? So Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, being circumcised in the Old Testament law, keeping the food laws, these are things that we do. And Paul is saying, before Abraham did any kind of obedience, he had the status righteous. He was justified by God before he did anything else, before he, did any, before he had all these acts of obedience. So Paul is arguing hard against those who have a wrong view of works. While James is fighting against those who have a wrong view of faith, Paul's fighting against people who have a wrong view of works. They think that their works can somehow earn them favor with God. I mean, that's what he's arguing against in Romans 4 or 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is arguing against those who think that what we do can gain us justification. Paul is arguing against uh, anybody who says God will accept us if we have faith, yes, but faith plus circumcision, faith plus a certain uh, social status, faith plus keeping the Sabbath, whatever it is. And so you can see how that ditch functions today. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have the ditch of easy believism, but on the other hand, you have the ditch of works righteousness. And this is a constant danger that's in front of us today. We feel like unless we do X, Y, or Z, God won't accept us. But Paul's point here is that we are accepted not on the basis of what we do, but because we believe. We believe his promises are true. 
We believe that he has sent his son, our Savior, to, say, to deliver us from our, our sins, to bring us into his kingdom. So it's, it's not as if God's waiting for us to have 40 years of obedience or five years of obedience or five seconds of obedience before he accepts us as righteous. But he accepts us the moment we believe in him, not because our faith is so great, but because the object of our faith is so great. So really, he's accepting us, and Paul's making the argument throughout this section, he's accepting us on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. That's how we are accepted before him. So if you hear James talking, and you're asking the question, how do I know that, my, that God has accepted me? I, I think what Paul wants to, to say to you is, God has accepted you on the basis of Christ. So don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. Don't look at your track record. Look at Jesus' record. He is perfectly reliable. He is perfectly faithful, and we can follow him. So that's the answer he's giving to those uh, who may be doubting whether their obedience or their track record or whatever we want to call it is sufficient. That's, that's a different battle than what James is fighting. So as we read the Bible, we have to be aware of these battles that they're fighting. If you teach the Bible, if you're a pastor, if you preach the Bible, you have to be aware of th- these different battles that are fighting so you're not, <clears throat> so you're not fighting the wrong opponent. And, and then you end up making the, the people who are stuck in easy believism feel okay, and you make the people who, stuck, who are stuck in work righteousness feel okay or vice versa. You've got to fight your right battles, as Paul and James are doing here. It's uh, fascinating to, to get a, a fuller <laughs> understanding of these two positions and perspectives. Um, and to me, it's, uh, it, I did not know James was, was fighting uh, this, easy, this easy believism where there were people maybe just checking the box, adding it to their resume, uh, not really becoming fully uh, devoted followers of Christ, but just checking the, okay, I'm a Christian box now. Um, and then... Um, the fact that Paul is is saying when you come to faith in Christ, you have been justified and have the righteousness of Christ immediately mm-hmm. without any work whatsoever. Now, yeah. any works that you do in life, you don't have to do. You get to do. As followers of Christ, we, don't, we get to do this stuff. We get to go uh, make a difference for the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as Paul keeps going in Romans... He's certainly not saying you believe and you can just kind of put that in a drawer and put it away, right? And uh, this is where we see the, the, the real unity of James and Paul. If you keep reading through Romans, even in, later on in Romans 4, which is what I was reading from earlier, we see, uh, well, in Romans 4.20, no unbelief made him... This is Paul's talking about Abraham here. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So we see Abraham's faith growing strong, increasing. And then if you keep going through the letter, um, famous verse in Romans 6, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we die to sin, still live in it? So Paul is really making the same argument that James is making, 
or he's on the same page with James, that true saving faith is going to transform you. And in Romans 6, we see this union with Christ that really lies at the foundation of all of this. Uh, When you boil it down theologically, uh, what are both of them uh, looking at? It's union with Christ. That is, because we're united to Christ by faith, we are justified. That is, we have his status as righteous. But then that, that union with Christ also means that we are sanctified. That is, we're transformed into his image. They go hand in hand. So throughout the centuries, many Christians have recognized this. And, and even the reformers, um, so Martin Luther, for example, kind of famously disparaged the book of James, which I'm surprised you haven't asked me about that yet. A lot of people ask me. I was me, getting to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, don't think I don't have a list of questions you, you, you haven't been asked yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> but, you know, Martin Luther famously said something along the lines of uh, the epistle of James is an epistle of straw that has nothing of the gospel about it. But uh, this, he also said, uh, faith and works are inseparable, like light and heat, uh, in his introduction to his commentary on Romans. So it's not as if James is the only one saying these kind of things. Paul himself was pulling faith and works closely together. And throughout church history, uh, many, many have recognized the inseparability of faith and works. But it is important, I should mention as well, to keep these things in the, in the proper order. I think both Paul and James are keeping them in their proper order. Mm-hmm. Paul is starting with uh, faith, then looking forward to the transformation that has. James is looking at the transformation, but then he's looking back and seeing the foundation of that transformation was in Abraham's faith in Genesis 15. So they're starting in different places, but they're really both making the same point. Mm-hmm. Chris, uh, here's a question that's been brewing in my head for about the last uh, 90 seconds. Why did Martin Luther disparage the book of James? <laughs> well, when we all get to heaven, you're going to have to ask him that question. All right, then let me take a break. We'll come back lots more with Dr. Chris Bruno. He's written a book called Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. If you want to enter the drawing to win one of my two copies that have been signed by Chris, uh, email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, and just put Paul versus James in the subject line. Make sure you put your name and address. Uh, that way I'll know right where to send it. Be back in a minute. back with uh, Dr. Chris Bruno, Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College in SEM in Minneapolis. book he's written that just came out in July is called Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. It is a very interesting one. Can you give us, uh, uh, Chris, a little church history about uh, James and Paul through the centuries? Yeah, just before the break, we were kind of laughing a little bit about Martin Luther and his uh, less than, uh, than positive comments about the book of James. Okay. But, uh, you know, as I was writing the book, I actually found out Martin Luther uh, didn't have quite as negative a view of James as we tend to think. Now, he said, like I said, he, it's the, an epistle of the straw that has nothing of the gospel about it, <laughs> which there's not an easy way to spin that in a positive direction. But let me try. 
No, I, I'm, what he was really saying there is basically the gospel. The the gospel message is not as clear in James as it is in some of Paul's letters. Luther said that. Luther said mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't agree with that necessarily. But uh, Martin Luther never tried to get rid of the book of James. He never tr- said it wasn't a part of the Bible. And he, you know, he he did preach and teach from it. But maybe we should back up a little bit when we think about the whole scope of church history and how these letters have been dealt with. Um, and I know we don't we don't have that much more time, but it's interesting to to look at a comparison of uh, Paul and James and how quickly they were accepted into the canon. Um, unsurprisingly, because we have so much more from Paul, the letters of Paul were brought into the, you know, they were confirmed, at, you know, as part of the New Testament canon much more quickly. But we don't have any anybody arguing against James very strongly. And so it's pretty early. Um, the church recognized that both the letter of James and the 13 epistles of Paul are a part of the New Testament scripture. So once they were both recognized as part of the New Testament canon, um, there's this question of how do we deal with these things? And so there, there's been debate and conversation throughout the centuries, really about the, the role of faith and works, how do faith and works relate to each mm-hmm. other. And, and there's some ambiguity in the early church fathers, no doubt about that. Um, at times, uh, for example, St. Augustine will say things that, that make faith and love kind of blend together. But this is, this is true of, of most doctrines, that it takes time to clarify exactly what the Bible teaches. So over the centuries, there's been different conversations about how do these two things work together. But really, fundamentally, most Christians, even in the early, uh, early centuries of the church, mo- most Christians recognized there's a distinction between faith and works, mm-hmm. but they're inseparable, which is really what we've been talking about over the last 45 minutes. So faith and works are distinct. You have to get them in the right order. Faith comes before works, but at the end of the day, they're inseparable. Now, in the in the Middle Ages, there started to be this uh, blurring and ambiguity. Um, so by the, the, the high Middle Ages and then into the late Middle Ages, you have this... Uh, this unclarity about faith and works that led us to the Protestant Reformation, which was a, a necessary um, reclaiming of the church's doctrine of faith and works, and also clarifying clarifying uh, what this doctrine really looks like, what this doctrine of justification um, is, and making clear the distinction between faith and works um, that we've been talking about over the last 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So all of the reformers shared this perspective. So all, all these reformed confessions, Luther, Calvin, Calvin the, uh, the 39 articles of the church of the church of England, they all articulate this clarification about justification, that justification is by faith alone. Yet the faith that justifies cannot remain alone. So that, that that's really one of the great discoveries of the Protestant Reformation or rediscoveries of the Protestant Reformation, that they saw this and they clarified it. And so, we, I mean, it's interesting. We've been talking for almost an hour, and we haven't really gotten into the Catholic-Protestant stuff. Mm-hmm. 
which I'm, I'm fine not to get into. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this thing uh, with our time remaining, Chris. When we look at Paul um, and James, and they were working together, obviously against different objections, right? So how does that strengthen our faith and motivate us today? Hmm. Yeah. Because we're probably still getting a bunch of that, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. In our, every day we got people that check the box and say, I voted for Jesus, but you go, that, <laughs> there's no fruit in your life. Yeah. There's, there's no evidence. Yeah, that, that's a good question. That's a good way to put it. So we have to be aware of those two dangers, those two ditches that are always a threat to us. I think all of us, whether it's by our personality or the church we grew up in, the tradition we come from, there's all these different factors where probably all of us are going to be inclined in one direction or another. So I I think it's helpful for us to ask that question. Am I inclined toward easy believism, toward the the kind of fake faith that James is arguing against? Mm -hmm. Or am I inclined toward works righteousness? That I, I, I really struggle with assurance. I think I have to do something for God to accept me. So identifying that yourself, um, you know, in your family, just kind of talking through that in your church or small group, what, whatever it might be. So just being aware of those constant dangers and then being on the lookout for where things might crop up. So on the one hand, if, if you're on the easy believism side, Maybe we have a tendency to excuse sin, to mm. think it's not a big deal. Jesus will forgive me. There was, I I saw this recent recently, trying to keep it vague, but I you know I heard somebody talking this way recently. Like it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to commit this sin. I know it's wrong, but Jesus will forgive me. If you find yourself thinking that or saying that, that's a dangerous place to be. Couldn't agree more. You're you're in the category that James is arguing against. So if that's you, just be aware of that. Fight against it. On the other hand, I know a lot of people struggle on the opposite side. They, They think, does God really love me? Does God really accept me in Jesus? Maybe maybe I have to do this much more. And so that, then that starts to motivate your obedience. So you're not obeying out of joy, mm-hmm. but you're thinking, well, if I give extra to the church, maybe these feelings of guilt will go away. Or if I give just that much extra effort or volunteer that much time or wh- whatever it is to, to fill that bucket. But really, both of those things are minimizing sin, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, you're minimizing sin by saying, my sin isn't a big deal. Jesus, God will forgive me. Yeah, God will forgive mm-hmm. me. Jesus Jesus died for that sin. Right. It, it's a big deal. But then on the other hand, you're saying, um, "My if my own righteousness can overcome my sin, then my sin's not that big of a deal. If If you can overcome it yourself then you're also minimizing sin. True. So do you see how both of those Mm -hmm. kind of minimize sin? They minimize the seriousness of sin. Christ had to die for our sin because we can't overcome it ourselves. We need his forgiveness. So we we tend toward one of those two ditches on either side. Mm -hmm. But the reality is I I think they both share a common root is they don't understand the seriousness of sin. 
So again, to go back to Paul and James, that's what they're fighting against. Yeah, They're both fighting against people who misunderstand the seriousness of sin. Chris, you've really given us a lot to think about. Uh, what excites me is just going back into um, the Word, because it always does. It always stimulates me to go back and, and start studying once again the passage that we've talked about today. Um, so thanks for coming in and giving us so much to think about. And, and uh, this has been a great discussion with uh, Dr. Chris Bruno. And again, his book is called Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. I've got two copies. Chris was nice enough to sign both of them. So if you want to get in the drawing to win one of those, all you have to do is email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Put Paul versus James in the subject line. Make sure you give us your name and address. If you're one of the lucky winners, I'll put it in the mail to you early next week, and you'll have it uh, next week. That wraps up our show. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for being in studio. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much for having me. Very fun. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.